This morning we look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of the ones reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house <clears throat> was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used it to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to, dead as, to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, a large crowd that had come for the feast had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took down branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand the things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, when they remembered that these things that had been written about him and had been done to him, the crowd that had been with him when he called out Lazarus from the tomb raised him and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him, because they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that, we, that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. I want to start this morning with a quiz. You didn't know that was coming, did you? Uh, it's sort of a math quiz. It's sort of a quiz. I'm going to put some numbers on the screen, and I want you to know if you know what those numbers mean this morning. Uh, so the first number that we're going to take a look at is a big one, 93 million. Uh, anyone remember what that is? Distance to the sun. Good. I'm glad I got that number right then. Seems like some people know that one. Uh, the second one, uh, 24,901. Anyone know what that one is? Circumference of the earth uh, at the wide spot, which I guess is all of them, but it's the circumference uh, of the earth. Uh, the next one, uh, 60 feet, 6 inches. Uh, any seam heads here? Uh, that's the distance from the pitcher's mound to home plate. Uh, a great number uh, right there. Uh, the next number, 168. Hours in a week. There you go, Bo. You got that one. Uh, 168 hours in every week. Now, I think that's an interesting number. We're going to circle back on that number in just a moment. But one of the things that I want you to know this morning as we move into John chapter 12 is that we are looking at the last 168 hours of Jesus' life. 
What's interesting is that the beginning of John, verses 1, really through, through 13, are the picture of Jesus in eternity. He was in the world. He was before the world. He, he existed before the beginning of time. When the world began, he was already there. That tells us verses 1 through 13 are Jesus in all of eternity. The rest of John chapter 1, all the way through John chapter 11, cover about three years of Jesus' ministry. And now, beginning with John chapter 12, all the way, almost to the last segment of the book, more than half of the book of John is about 168 hours, seven days. Now, I want you to notice how the gospel writer stops to tell this story that, again, 13 verses for eternity, 12 chapters for three years. And what happens in these last seven days, these last 168 hours, are so important that he spends more than half the book on these last seven days. And so if we've been paying attention to the Gospel of John so far, that's great, but now we really need to pay attention because this is the Gospel's focus is what happens in these days right here. Now I said that one of the things that we were gonna do is that we were gonna circle back around to that 168. We are looking at Jesus' last 168 hours of his earthly ministry, but, but I wanna remind you that you are standing on the threshold of a fresh 168 yourself. 160 hours that are presented to you, you're gonna have 160 hours from when you leave this place to when you come back, maybe 167 depending on how long church goes this morning. But the idea is that you stand right here in front of you. You are about to have a fresh 168 hours for your life and here's the good news. Here's the good news for you this morning. That my life can reflect the power and glory of Jesus this week. My life can reflect the power and the glory of Jesus in the next 168 hours. Yes, my life can do that. We are grateful for what is revealed in the glory and the splendor of creation. We are grateful for the power and the authority that comes from the word of God. But I want you to know that your life can reflect the power and the glory of Jesus this week. As we pick up John chapter 12 uh, this morning, one of the things that, that we see here is, and we've been noticing this over the last few weeks, is that the people continue to be divided. People are believing in Jesus. Remember, on almost every page of the Gospel of John is the story of someone believing in Jesus. But at the same time as there is this current of people who are becoming believers of Jesus, there is at the same time this current of people who are opposed to Jesus, who are rejecting Jesus. And so the intensity of these two streams of the population is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. But I want you to notice in this passage of Scripture, in the verses that we read a few moments ago, I want you to notice that on the edge of this final week of Jesus' life, this week that is gonna push Jesus to the very limits, this week that all of history is gonna hinge on, when so many people are confused about Jesus, including his disciples. Now, I don't mean to kick them too much, because the whole story hasn't been written. 
They're trying to understand it as it's unfolding. But in this edge of this last week, we see the picture of some true believers who stand so visibly and reveal the power and the glory and the goodness of Jesus in this week. And what I want to do is I want to come back and I want to take a look at some of these lives that reflected the power and glory of Jesus in their lives in the middle of these stories. In order to do that, we, we jump back into the text. And what we see here at the beginning of the text is that vibrant and alive faith surprises others. Vibrant and alive faith surprises others. What we see here at the beginning of chapter 12 is that there is a gathering in Bethany. Now you know Bethany. We were in Bethany just last week. Jesus left Bethany, has come back to Bethany. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Bethany, he is once again invited to be in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And when they invite him, to be in their home this time. They've always loved having Jesus in their home, but this time when they have Jesus in their home, it is his first visit since he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. Now you don't think they're gonna use the good silverware for that kind of an event? They're gonna bring out the good plates? They're not, there's no paper plates for this event. This is a big deal. Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the dead. I don't think that we can begin to comprehend the kind of gratitude that comes for someone who saves us, rescues our life, and in this case, in this case, restores Lazarus from the tomb. It's interesting. He had been in the tomb long enough that the crowds had gathered. The funeral had been completed. They were still hanging out at the house. All of those funeral casseroles were still open all over the table. I think Lazarus is the only person in history that ever got to eat the leftovers from his own funeral meal. He circled back like, man, who brought this? This was great. It is a house that is full of celebration and excitement and joy, which explains why Mary comes in and falls at Jesus' feet and breaks open this vial of ointment and perfume. And she wipes Jesus' feet clean with this ointment and finishes off that cleaning and caring for him by wiping his feet with her hair. I've been trying to put myself in that room all week this week. It was wild. It was wild, first of all, because she brings in a, a, a lifetime supply of this perfume. We're, we're going to come back to the cost of this in just a few minutes, but it's, it, the value of this was about a year's worth of salary. Let's just say $30,000. Now, what I wanted to do this morning, and people close to me told me I couldn't do it, is I wanted to go buy about $50 worth of perfume 
And I wanted to just pour it out here this morning. Some faces are already like, glad you didn't do that. I said, well, if you do it at 8.30, we're never going to survive again at 11 o'clock. It's gonna, we're going to choke on that much. This is $30,000 worth of perfume. Not in this sanctuary, but in this house. The profoundness of the smell of that perfume, the power. I think you're like, who? I would choke on that. Why? You don't think they weren't choking on that? It was this extravagant pouring out in this moment. I've been trying to figure out the, the, the wiping of Jesus' feet with her hair. I mean, there were towels around. Next chapter, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he wipes them off with a towel. And reading about it, it was extraordinary, unusual, against the whole social grain for a woman to unbraid her hair in public. I've tried to look at this passage of Scripture, and I'm like, I think it might have been awkward to be in the room when this woman comes and breaks open this vial of perfume and takes her very own hair and with her hair wipes clean Jesus' feet. Man, that's not normal. That, that, that's not what we usually see. And so now you, you've got this aroma that people are trying to work their way through. There, there's the awkwardness of the intimacy with which she is responding to Jesus. And then at the back of the room, one of the disciples says, this is a waste. This poor woman, out of her gratitude, she is just pouring herself out to Jesus, and some guy from the back of the room says, this is a waste. I can't believe this amount of money was spent like this, being wasted in a 15-minute event here. What a waste this is. This should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Now, it tells us that the disciple who said this, his name is Judas Iscariot. You might have heard of him before, but this is one of the first times he shows up in the text. And it tells us that he does this because he is a thief. And he holds the money back. And Judas is the kind of guy that knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And he did a quick number crunch on the value of this vial of perfume. And he said if 30,000 goes in, that's going to feel good on my belt as I carry that bag. And if that much goes in, who's going to notice if a little bit falls out, if you know what I mean? Falls off the back of the truck, if you know what I mean. But what, well, but what Judas says is, he says, this is a waste. We should have sold that and given that money to the poor. 
It wasn't that he was interested in the poor. He was interested in himself. He was interested in poor Judas is what he was interested in. You ever know people who talk spiritual to hide their own selfishness? Man, don't do that. I'm not saying this is a case in this church, but over the years as a pastor, sometimes there'll be a, a ministry opportunity to say, we, know we ought to do this, and it'll be a great way to reach people. And people are like, yeah, maybe. And the cry at the back of the room is always, oh, I don't think insurance will cover that. Uh, you know, insur- we, we, we would really love to do that, but, but insurance won't cover that. Here's my experience. No one has ever actually called the insurance company to find out. My further experience is a lot of times, if you give the insurance company 500 bucks, they'll cover whatever you ask them to. But we use some spiritual talk to cover up some selfishness. Now listen, don't lose track of how expensive this perfume is. Back when Jesus is about to do the feeding of the 5,000, one of the disciples come in, what are we going to do? We can't feed these people. If we had 200 denarii, we couldn't feed this 5,000 people, these 5,000 men, plus all the women and children who are here. 200 denarii wouldn't be able to feed that kind of a crowd. Well, this is valued at 300 denarii. So when, Zacche- or when Judas is able to talk about, well, think about how many people we'd be able to feed with this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a big number. But Jesus values the fact that this woman comes, that Mary comes and pours out not just this vial, not just her hair as she unbraids it, but she pours out the depth of her heart to Jesus. You see, I think sometimes we live too carefully inside of our faith. We, we live with our foot on the brake. We live measuring out our passion and our excitement and our, and our fervor. Are we afraid that we're going to run out of love for Jesus? Like if we express too much love in this moment, that, that, that we won't have enough for next week? I think one of the things that we need to see is that we need to live a vibrant in a live faith, and that there are times in our life when we are caught up in worship that we get carried away, that there are times in prayer that we get carried away, there are times in giving when we get carried away, there are times when we just plain make a scene because of our passion and the vibrancy and the aliveness of our faith. Now, no. Sometimes it'll surprise others. (laughs) Sometimes, man, they really did make a scene. Boy, they just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They went on and on and on. Boy, that's not the kind of money that I, that's not what I would have done with my money. Boy, what a, who knows if you can even trust that. All kinds of questions like that. But understand that really is kind of the default setting. That when we live our lives with vibrant and alive faith in Jesus. It will make other people who don't have that same kind of faith to scratch their heads and say, now why would they do that? But I want you to know that when we live that kind of life, extravagant and, 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 and without our foot on the brake and without caution in terms of our passion for the things of God, 
it will bring glory and honor to Jesus. Your life can do that this week if we will live in a way that does not live with our foot on the brake the whole time full of caution. I also want you to see in this passage of Scripture, and several of you have been looking forward to this point. You've been reading ahead in the Gospel of John, and you got to this part, and you're like, wow, check this out. I will tell you that vibrant and alive faith in Jesus will confound the critics. Now, you see, there were a group of people that were opposed to Jesus, and they wanted to cry out that Jesus was a fraud, that Jesus was an imposter, that Jesus was a false teacher, that there was no good in Jesus, that he was not from God, he was not a person of power. All of it was fake. Well, they had a Lazarus problem. Because you see, Lazarus used to be dead until Jesus called him out by name from that tomb. And now, everywhere that Lazarus goes, it is evidence of the power and the profoundness of Jesus' power and authority and that he is from God because who else could do this kind of sign and this kind of work? It tells us that the, the Jews, the, the, the religious authorities that are coming from Jerusalem are, are there to just kind of see Lazarus. I believe some of that is curiosity. You ever met someone who used to be dead? There's a degree of curiosity to that, but there's also a degree that quietly the religious leaders, I think, are looking for verification. They want to make sure that Lazarus is real. Do you remember all the work that they did with the man that was born blind back in John chapter 9? They, they said, is it really the same person? Was he really blind? Has he, has he really been faking blindness for 40 years just for this uh, moment? And they tested him and they poked at him. They called in his parents and all that kind of thing because the sign was this great witness to the power of Jesus. And so they were trying to, de to decline that. I think with Lazarus, he was such a well-known figure that they really couldn't poke holes. Everybody knows Lazarus. He's one of the most known people in town. The whole town saw him walk out of the tomb, or at least hobble out of the tomb. They saw it. I think sometimes all of that effort to the blind man and how long it took to verify him Maybe a sign that people have been looking past that blind man because he was a beggar on the side of the road and not an important person town like, in town like Lazarus was. And, and I think that should kind of catch us sometimes that sometimes we don't look people in the eye that we're uncomfortable with that they may not even recognize the blind man. But Lazarus, they couldn't help. <laughs> and everywhere Lazarus goes... He is a walking, talking, living, breathing evidence of the power of Jesus. And so these religious leaders are trying to say, listen, don't listen to Jesus. He is not the real thing. He is a false teacher. He is not from God. I don't know that this is what happened, but I can picture Lazarus just kind of following them around and then just waving every once in a while. He doesn't have to say anything. He just got to wave. Me over here used to be dead till Jesus called me out of the tomb. What were you saying? Lazarus's life is a confounding problem for the critics. 
Has your life messed up anybody's unbelief lately? Is there anything that's unfolded and is there any attributes of your life that someone would say, I don't really want to believe in Jesus, but look at Brian's life. And I, I, every time I see Brian, I got to think, oh man, I can't explain it any other way than Jesus. But you see that there are people who want to deny the efficacy, the power, the realness, the aliveness of Jesus today because they say, we just don't see any evidence of that in anybody's life. In fact, there, there are those who would say today that Jesus' people are pretty much just like everybody else. They lie as much as everybody else. They cheat as much as everybody else. They cuss as much as everybody else. They gossip just as much as everybody else. They are rude just as much as everybody else. They are greedy just as much as everybody else. They cheat on their spouses just as much as everybody else. Because they haven't run into enough people whose lives give evidence to the transformation of their lives. You might not used to be dead, but you haven't been alive like you are now in Christ. You used to be lost. You used to be blind. You used to be separated from the presence of God, but now you are not. Has your life confounded confused the critics because your life has been transformed by Jesus. You see, vibrant and alive faith in Jesus confounds that. So whether it is a person who is a family member, whether it is a coworker, whether it is a professional relationship, whether it's someone that you pass in traffic, whether it is a parent-teacher conference, whether you're the parent or the teacher, there's something about that that when they encounter you, they're like, whew, that Jesus seems to have made a difference in their life. That Jesus has made a difference in their life because their life has reflected the power and the glory of God in this week. Vibrant and alive faith in Jesus confounds the critics. One more piece, and, and this is really the, the passage that we read here about the Palm Sunday, and that is the vibrant and alive faith draws a crowd. It draws a crowd. We, we, we don't really, it's not Palm Sunday. We, we don't really have time to get into all of this. But there was a traffic problem all of a sudden getting into Jerusalem. And there are people that are coming from every direction. And it creates a scene unlike the city of Jerusalem has probably ever seen at least in a really, really long time. Now, what's interesting is that this traffic is coming from three different directions. There's traffic that is coming from Galilee, where Jesus has done most of his ministry, where people have seen most of his miracles. They are coming down the road with, from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover. And in fact, many of them may have even traveled with Jesus or in the same pack of people that Jesus has come. And they've been watching Jesus do miracles for a long time. So when Jesus approaches the city of Jerusalem and there is just this electricity in the air, then they are excited because they have been watching Jesus up close for a long time. But there's another part of the crowd that comes 
from Bethany. The passage of scripture tells us these are the people who have met Lazarus. These are the people who saw the miracle. These are the people who have believed because what Jesus has done in Lazarus's life. And then there are the people who are in the city of Jerusalem who are coming out of the city to see what all the commotion and all of the energy is all about. I want you to know the vibrant and alive faith in Jesus gathers a crowd. Susan loves it when the, the Saints have a big playoff game or uh, the LSU uh, has got a game against Alabama or something like that. She says it's the best time to go to Walmart. She said, everybody's home watching the game. You can walk through Walmart like you own the place. The aisles are empty. There's no line at the checkout. The whole place is yours because all the traffic has gone someplace else. What happens to the traffic on Sunday mornings? What happens on the traffic on Sunday mornings? Well, one of the things that I want to see is I want the traffic to churches on Sunday morning to show up on Google Maps. I want you to look at your phone and say, now why is there all that yellow? Why is there all that red around these spots around town? It's because it's Sunday morning and people are going to church. It is rearranging the traffic of the world. And I want you to know that when you are here in church, it is not just for you to gather. It is not just for you to worship. But it is part of your witness to the larger crowd that when you are consistently here to be in God's house, it is a statement. It is a reflection of the power and the glory of Jesus. And your life gets to announce that and gets to share that by being here in this place. We want to reroute all of traffic. Now when the people gather, it's not just being there, but when they gather, they can hear the message of Jesus. Because again, if we were spending a lot of time on Palm Sunday, one of the things that we would point out is that they came expecting one thing. They expected Jesus to enter into Jerusalem as a conquering hero, unleashing all of the power that he had, unleashing all of the crowds that he was bringing with him, and they were going to overthrow Rome together. And instead, he enters on that gentle donkey because he was going to conquer in a completely different way than they expected. He came not to conquer Rome but he came to conquer sin and death. And it's because those crowds gathered that they could begin to hear the teaching and see what Jesus wanted them to know. Vibrant and alive faith in Jesus gathers a crowd. So what does this mean for our lives this morning? What's the, what's the now what this morning? Well, I, I would tell you and challenge you to make worship a given, to, to make worship the starting point of when you build your week's plans, when you build your plans for the weekends, you make a decision whether that's something you're going to do before church or whether it's going to be after church, but what you know is that you're going to be here in church. It's good for you, and it's a good witness for the people around you. And if you're not able to be here and, and you're watching online, I'd 
encourage you to go back to the days when we used to share the service and say, I'm watching my church online. Let's share it and not just create physical traffic, but create online traffic as well because we want to draw people and point people to Jesus. I want us to think in this week of some moments when we might find ourselves being more cautious in our faith than we're supposed to be. Even if it's awkward, even if it's extravagant, even if it's more than what anyone else would expect, that we would live out our faith without the break of caution on our lives. And then to think about the next 168 hours and your witness and what your life is saying. I'm not asking you or expecting you or me to be perfect for the next 168 hours. But I do want to reflect and say, is there a part of my life, my language, my money, how I deal with people, my temper, whatever it may be, is there some part of life that is doing harm to my witness that would allow someone to say, well, clearly Jesus doesn't really make a difference in a real person's life. Is there some part of life that you need to square away so that your life in Christ, vibrant and alive, confound those who would deny the power of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. And Lord, I know that we gathered here this morning with a desire to have vibrant and alive life. And sometimes we're not even sure what that would look like, but we want to have vibrant and alive faith in you, Lord, that, that it would be right and strong in our lives and bear witness to others. And sometimes we're not even sure how to do that. But Lord, I pray that you would use the words from your word today to give us direction on what that faith that is vibrant and alive would look like. We pray this in your name, amen. As we respond this morning, Michael and I will be down front. We talked a little bit at the beginning that there were some folks who believed and there were some folks who did not believe. But I want you to know one of the great parts is when the story happens when someone who did not believe becomes a person who did believe. In fact, every single person who believes is a person who makes that journey from unbelief to belief. At some point in time, they became a believer. And I want to take the invitation this morning as an opportunity for you to make that shift from being a person who did not believe, did not quite believe, did not believe yet, to being a person who believes today.